0: through 32, and if you would like to follow along in your Red Pew Bibles, it is on page 796. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served great created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual Relations with unnatural ones, in the same way that the men used also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind." So that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Be to
1: God. Would you pray with me? Father God, um, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would be near to us, that you would be illuminating us with your light, teaching us to grow in repentance and faith in you. pray that you would um, be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, minister the gospel to us and help us to to learn to turn from that sin. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Amen. Just a note before we get started, um, that... If you weren't here last week, right? So there are verses 24 through 27 of this text, deals with one specific example that Paul kind of talks about within this larger discussion of sexual sin and especially he talks about homosexuality there. And so last week we spent the whole sermon discussing that example and the issues that surround it. And I say that this morning because there are issues that you can't kind of address in passing sometimes if that makes sense, right? Like you either need to like have the whole discussion or not talk about it at all. So I know if you weren't here last week that some of you may well have questions about some of those specific things and I'm saying this now, both so that you don't wonder as we go through the sermon and so when we come to that point, um, we're going to touch on those verses in terms of how they fit in Paul's argument here. We are not going to talk about those issues this morning because we kind of had it. Did that discussion last week. If that makes sense to you guys, I wanted to kind of clear that up. So if you weren't there, it's recorded and online on the church website, and you're welcome to come talk to me about it. But um, it's just wiser, I think, to not kind of say a few things when a lot of things need to be said. And regardless of how you feel about that issue, um, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to engage with that because um, I think for everybody, there's more that needs to be said than we naturally say. With that said, Let's talk about the kind of text and its broader outlines. And as we do, I have to confess something to all of you that everyone that is more than like 10 years older than me is about to judge me for, um, because it will very much mark me as a part of my generation. So I, growing up, given the age that I am, played a lot of video games. Everyone who's my age and under knows that. And... um, not maybe in my really young years, because my parents really strictly limited that stuff, but in high school, and especially in college, I played a lot of video games. And in fact, as a freshman in college, I got into these things called massively multiplayer online role-playing games in their kind of early stages, um, and... In those games, you would have this character and you'd be playing with other people online and you'd go on these quests and kill monsters and you'd get experience and find loot and slowly get better. And the key thing you need to understand is it's slowly, okay? So to get into those games, because it moved very slowly in that progression, it took a lot of time. Like when I was a freshman in college, I was probably spending more than 20 hours a week playing the one of those games that I was playing, which... um, Is a lot. And what's interesting is that in those kinds of games, I don't know, at least for me, that you really are enjoying playing the game. Because to play them right and to to grow, what you have to do is kind of play the same level or the same area over and over and over. People who play those games have a term for that, which is called grinding, which is as unpleasant as it sounds. You are grinding for loot or gold or experience. And the reason people did it, though, and that's why we're talking about it this morning, the reason I got hooked on those games is that you're totally invested in this cycle as you play them, all right? You play for hours and hours, and you grind, and then you get that you know, that next level or that, that ultra-rare loop drop or whatever, and you feel incredible, and you're thrilled, and you feel like you've made it, and then you take a five-minute bathroom break, and you get back to grinding again, I mean, I I clearly remember investing huge amounts of time in those games, and then one night at like 2 in the morning as a freshman in college, closing my laptop and looking down at it and thinking, this is insane, (laughs) right? And it is kind of insane, right? Not to enjoy video games. I know those of you who are older feel that, and I'm not, that's not something as a pastor I'm going to be speaking to, right? But that cycle is kind of crazy, that I would spend hours with this imaginary character who is really just a collection of zeros and ones, swinging an imaginary sword that was just a collection of zeros and ones, in order to maybe find a sword that had slightly better zeros and ones, so that I could just continue going. And that was crazy. But here's the thing. I'm not telling you that story because those video games are insane and we should shake our heads at kids these days like me. I'm telling you that story to suggest that that insanity that I just described, writ large in this world, is exactly what Paul is talking about in our text this morning. That cycle that we talked about of being unfulfilled and seeking after something and getting it and still being unfulfilled, that's what Paul discusses in our text. He calls it idolatry idolatry. So in the text we read this morning, Paul is continuing to explore this question that we started discussing a few weeks ago. Um, This question of God's wrath and judgment and how it is that people like us deserve it and of what sin is basically. And for Paul, sin is rooted in our idolatry. That's what he kind of starts discussing this morning. Idolatry is the root of sin. So verse 23 is kind of key to our reading this morning. So if you look at it with me this morning, he's talking about these people, which are us, human beings, and he says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. All right? They exchanged you know, the immortal God for these images of these created things. And this is the verse that kind of this passage turns on. Everything before it was kind of leading up to this verse, talking about how their understandings are darkened and things leads to this. And then this is, everything after this is kind of these therefores, right? Therefore this happened, therefore this happened. So let's talk about idolatry, which is what that verse talks about. So the Bible often pictures idolatry in what I guess you'd call its crudest form, right? Praying to kind of statues. That's what Paul pictures here, in a sense, people turning to images of people and birds and fish. And in that regard, we can feel like that has nothing to do with the world that we live in, right? We can feel like we don't have those struggles, but we couldn't be more wrong if that is how we feel. In the first place... For scripture, idolatry is not sinful just because it's about like false gods, right? Paul isn't saying that like the problem is that you're praying to Jupiter or something. Idolatry is sinful in scripture because it's worshiping some part of creation as if it was the creator. So Paul makes that clear in verse 25. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So idolatry in scripture is sinful because it's trusting in some part of creation, ...rather than in God the creator. And more than that... ...idolatry is sinful in scripture. It's never just about like... ...it's never bad just because like... worshiping statues are bad... ...because people didn't worship statues... ...because they thought like... ...this is a really awesome statue every one of those idols that people prayed for really stood for some broader thing in creation, right? You prayed to Neptune in Paul's world so that your ship wouldn't sink and, you, know, and you, could, you could make the money that it was carrying in. You prayed to Mars so that you could kill your enemies. You prayed to Pluto to get rich. Idolatry was always part of this system that you lived in where you worshipped these, these, cre- these images of created things because they kind of stood in for these other created things you were chasing, right? Money, power family, things like that. So it's not just that the means you were using, the praying to statues, is wrong, but the goals you were chasing are also wrong. And that's why in the Bible, sometimes it talks about idolatry in a way that has nothing to do with praying to little statues. So for example, Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual imp- immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Or, Jesus in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, Jesus is picturing money, right, as somehow like a God, a master just like the Lord is that we can serve. Greed, like covetousness, can be idolatry. And really, anything can be because we can worship all kinds of things. Here's how the theologian J.I. Packer puts it really memorably. He says, What other gods could we have beside the Lord? Plenty. For Israel, there were the Canaanite balls, those jolly nature gods whose worship was a rampage of gluttony. But for us, there are still the great gods of sex, shekels, and stomach. And the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position. Football, the firm, and family are also gods for some. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless for anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god and claimants for this prerogative religion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. So idolatry doesn't have to look like some statue. It can look like all kinds of things. In practice, idolatry looks like this. We start with a certain set of desires, right? And those desires at their root level are good desires. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be secure. We want to be loved. Those are all good things that we desire, right? But what we do is we take something other than God and make it the means by which we think we're going to arrive at that thing. We believe that if we have enough fame, we would be happy. If we had enough stuff we would be fulfilled. If we had enough money, we would be secure. If we were beautiful or successful enough, we would be loved. And so what we make that thing our immediate goal, and then what we functionally do is start treating that thing like our God that's going to get us the thing that we desire. Even though what we ultimately want is happiness or security, what we start living for and serving is money or success. And here's the thing about that idolatry in Scripture. That is crazy, just like that cycle that we described at the beginning. It's insane. I mean, think about stuff and possessions, right? Think about all the televisions and patio furniture and kitchen gadgets and electronic devices that each of us own, When we get something new, when I get something new, right? When I get one of those new, like, gadgets or, you know, or whatever, um, I am excited, right? I'm thrilled. But I'm not thrilled because it's that great, right? I'm not, like, you know, like, bow down to the extra two inches on my TV screen, right? I'm thrilled because I feel like I've made it. Now I will be happy. Now I will be content, right? That's the thing I'm seeking, and I feel thrilled for, like, 15 minutes. And then it's back to the cycle again, right? Right? and I'm not happy, and I'm not content, but I don't conclude the obvious thing. That's, what import- that's what's important, right? I don't conclude, like, I want to be happy, so I buy stuff to make me happy, and I've done that a thousand times, and I'm still not happy, right? What doesn't make sense is that I conclude from that, I need to buy more stuff. <laughs> that cycle, according to Scripture, is what idolatry is. It's this endless loop of seeking those ultimate desires through created things that are never going to get it. The- Get us there. It's like being on a merry-go-round and convincing yourself that you're really getting somewhere when you're just going in circles. So Paul's telling us that that idolatry is the root of sin. And we're going to talk about how he unfolds it in the coming verses. But first, I just want to note a general thing that that means for us. It means that you and I, each of us need to spend some time reflecting on what our particular idols are. What our particular idols are. Because while all of us are prone to that kind of idolatry, for different ones of us, it can be different things. And identifying them is actually really important to dealing with sin. Because here's the thing. Sin comes... Take like anger, right? Anger comes from somewhere, right? Um, So we wrestle with anger sometimes. And our temptation is to think like, I'm getting angry. I need to stop getting angry, right? That's my conclusion. Like, I need to fix, you know, my struggles with anger. But that anger comes from somewhere like we said and the place it comes from is both important if we're actually going to address it and it can be different for different ones of us right so for instance we can wrestle with anger because we wrestle the idol of our competence right we want to be you know the, the perfect skilled competent at everything person and when we fail at that we get angry we get angry at ourselves We also get angry at other people when they see us fail, right? I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but I totally have done that, right? Where, like, I screw up and someone just is present and sees it, and I get mad at them because they're kind of standing witness to the fact that I'm not as competent and perfect as I believe I should be. Or... Maybe anger comes from worshiping the idol of other people and wanting other people to be that great, perfect being for you, right? And so they fail us, and we have to confront the fact that they're not not our perfect saviors that can deliver us from all harm and evil, and so we get mad at them. We get mad at them because they're not the gods that we've made them. Or anger can come from worshiping possessions and having them threatened. Or anger can come from worshiping ideas and ideologies and having people disagree with them. It can come from all those places. But the point is that each of us, as we wrestle with sin, need to reflect on what those places are for us. Because we won't solve that anger if we don't address the underlying issue, right? If we keep on, like, being in love with our competence or expecting other people to be our saviors, that anger is going to continue to flare up. But as we start to understand, like, where that's coming from, we start to be able to fight it. And the important thing is that's true of every sin, not just of anger. Pride can be a product of having too high an opinion of myself and worshipping this, like, false, like, great image I have of myself. Or it can be from having too low an image of myself, right? And worshipping kind of like this, this image, this fake thing I'm trying to show the world. Lust can come from a desire for pleasure or from relationship or for power. Greed can be a product of loving stuff, or wanting to control things, or just wanting to feel safe and secure. To deal with those sins, we have to start dealing with the why, the idols in our heart that drive us to them. And so we need to understand where idolatry comes from, right? If idolatry is the root of sin, we need to understand where it comes from. And then we need to understand where it leads us. And that's really what Paul starts discussing in the rest of our text, where idolatry leads. That it leads to desires that destroy, and it leads to systems of sin. To desires that destroy, and to systems of sin. So after we see this root of idolatry, let's walk through the rest of the text and look at these. First, Paul says, idolatry leads to desires that destroy. It's not just that it puts us in this cycle and isn't unfulfilling, right? That it's actually like a downward cycle. It's actually destructive to us understand everything we're about to say, there's something we need to understand. Um, this really important phrase that appears three times in this passage. So look at verse 24. It's the first time. It says, therefore God gave them over. And then it starts talking about what he gave them over to. Therefore God gave them over. And that same phrase appears in verses 26 and 28. It's important because, so we think about Paul's talking here about us being under the judgment of God, but when we think about like God's wrath and being under God's judgment, we tend to think of this sort of active, like fire falling from the sky, right? You know, like lightning smiting people dead. And that's not exactly wrong, but in this age, that is not the primary way that scripture views God as acting as judge. Instead, scripture views God's judgment as simply letting us do what we please and suffering the natural consequences of those choices. That, um, that God is turning us over to the penalties of sin. Because one of the chief penalties of sin is sin. So it's the natural consequences in this text, in a sense, that are the judgment of God. And that's important because that helps us make sense of what Paul then goes on to say. All right, Now, like we said, we're about to talk about 24 through 27. And if you weren't here last week, the specific examples here I know are super controversial and Go back and listen to that sermon. But the general thing that Paul is saying um, is that what God is doing is turning these people over to the consequences of their choices. Look at verse 24. So it says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. So God's giving them over to this sexual desire for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So God's turning them over to these desires and the judgment that results is that they degrade themselves and each other. See the same idea at the end of verse 27. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves themselves, the due penalty for their error. That last sentence, the received in themselves the due penalty for their error, that's a kind of confusing sentence. Another way you could have translated it is that they, they themselves received from their actions the natural results of their actions. They received from their actions the natural results of their actions. So here's the general thing that Paul is saying, and this is true of all sin, right? Not just the example he's giving. That one consequence of our idolatry is that we actually hurt and destroy ourselves as we pursue it. That one consequence of our idolatry is that we actually hurt and destroy ourselves when we pursue it. And we hurt and destroy others. So, for instance, right, the idol Paul talks about in verse 24 is, um, is sort of desiring the affection and, you know, and pleasure and contact and relationship with other human beings, right? Particularly in that kind of most intimate way. Um, Looking for physical comfort and pleasure and connection with other human beings. But the farther down that road you run, Paul is saying, if that's the ultimate thing you worship, the more it actually degrades and destroys your humanity. I mean, think about Think about the guy who is all about the ladies, right? To use the, the popular kind of terminology today. You know what I'm talking about, right? Ostensibly, that guy's life is all about women. Yes, that's what he would tell you. Um, but his actual view of those women is really low, isn't it? He's given his whole life for this thing, and he's actually degraded it in the process. He doesn't view them as daughters of God or sisters in Christ or even like thoughtful human beings with feelings and minds and all of that, right? He views them as a collection of physical attributes, as meat. By worshiping them, he's actually degraded them. And he degrades himself. I mean, that guy who gives his whole life to that thing... He's not destined for great things, right? If he keeps living for that. Ultimately, right, where does that guy end up? He ends up in kind of that sad, like, place as a dirty old man. Which is hard to hear, right? It's hard to recognize that. But Paul's trying to say that all of our sin, all of our idolatry is like that to us. It actually degrades us. It actually diminishes us as human beings. Henry Nowen, in his book, The Wounded Healer, he tells this story to try to illustrate it. The story from ancient India. He says there's four brothers and they each go off to master a magical art, right? They're going to become great magicians. And so they go off and then they come back together. And the first brother says, I went and I learned the magical art where I can take a bone and I can make like flesh grow on the bone. And the second brother says, well, I've mastered and learned the magical art where if you have a bone that has flesh on it, I can make like skin and hair grow on the bone. And the third brother says, well, I've mastered the magical art that if you do that, you can cause it to like, grow out into a body right, and grow limbs. And then the fourth brother says, and I've learned the magical art where if you have a whole body right, with skin and flesh and limbs and all of that, you can give it life. So the four brothers figure, well, we have something pretty sweet here. So they say, we're going to show off this awesome godlike power we have. And they go off into the jungle and they find a bone. And they start to work their magics and flesh is on it and skin and it grows the limbs and life is breathed into it. And they feel so great. Except, of course, the bone that they found was the bone of a dead lion. And no sooner had they finished their, you know, their magical spells than it jumped on them and ate all four of them. (laughs) Which is one of those great fables, but it also tells us something true about our idols. That the more we worship them, the greater we make them, the more we make them the center of our universe, the more they actually devour us, the more that they consume us. If I could put it one other way. Here's why I think that happens. Here's part of the answer. If you look again at verse 25, it says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So so they worship and serve them, right? Inevitably, whatever that thing is that you put at the center of your universe, it's going to demand that you worship and serve it. God demands that we worship and serve him, right? We're called to kind of make sacrifices to him. And here's, here's how I think about it. It's like we are called by God, in a sense, to seek to take parts of ourselves and give them to him, to kind of take them and cut them off and give them to him, right? And that is hard, but what are the things that God calls us to sacrifice and give up? They're sin, Right? We're being called to give up, you know, I mean, to seek to cut off those parts of ourselves that are selfish, right, that are prideful, that are, that are cruel, that are thoughtless. Those are the things we're supposed to give up to him. And obviously, that's a process that goes through our whole life, but, right? But as we cut those parts off, what are we becoming? We're becoming, in a sense, more human, right? We're becoming more holy. We're becoming more selfless. We're becoming more kind. So the sacrifices are hard, but what's left as we cut those things off is somehow more human, So then the question is, what are the bits that sin if you worship some created thing that it's asking you to cut off? Because it's always going to demand a sacrifice too, right? If you want to make the big bucks, you're going to have to give it your time and your family. If you want everybody to like you, you're going to have to sacrifice your character and your spine. Every idol demands that we sacrifice things too, But the sacrifices that they demand are the good parts of ourselves. Our honesty, our selflessness, our family, our reputation. Those are the kinds of things that we have to give up in the worship and service of idols. And the more of those things we cut off, the more we're actually diminished as human beings. So that means that part of how we need to fight idolatry Part of the reason that Paul is telling us this is simply that we need to start naming the price, right? We need to start naming the price for our sins. Because sin in the moment, it feels good, right? Anyone who tells you otherwise doesn't understand sin. Like, sin in the moment is pleasurable. The problem is that it comes with a price... that That pleasure that is that is much greater than the pleasure that it gives, right? In the short term, it might feel good, but in the long term it ends up hurting us. And so part of fighting sin, one of the keys biblically is just naming to ourselves that price when we're confronted by that sin. Asking ourselves, is it really worth that? So that's half of Paul's talking through kind of where idolatry leads us then. And the other half is that it doesn't just lead us to desires that destroy, Paul says, but it leads us to systems of sin. Idolatry leads to systems of sin. It's not just that idolatry causes us to maybe kind of spiral downward, but it also spreads outward. So look at verse 28. Paul says that God is giving people over to depraved minds, Since they do not retain the knowledge of God, so God gives them over to depraved minds so that they do not do what ought to be done, right? So somehow it's not just the actions that are resulting, but the thinking is actually getting skewed. And then he puts it in verse 29, he says, they've become filled because of this with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. So all these sins, and he goes on to list more all these sins, right? They, they're growing, we're becoming filled with them because of that. And then in verse 32, although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. So even beyond themselves, right? As you worship an idol, you're starting to approve of and view and shape the world around you in those ways. All of which is to say that one of the realities about our idolatry and sin is that it rarely stays in its place. It rarely stays in its place. It doesn't keep to one corner of our lives, right? That's, that's what I want is to kind of just keep it in kind of this isolated pocket. But sin inevitably spreads. I mean, you think about the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Most of you guys are familiar with this story. King David is up on his roof and he sees this woman and um, He has her come over to the palace and, you know, both of them are married, right, to other people and they end up sleeping together. And that's sin, right? Just to be clear, hopefully nobody has any question about that. But the thing is, that sin doesn't just stay there, right? Immediately, David and Bathsheba start lying to the people around them. And then when it turns out that she's pregnant, David first tries to deceive her husband and when that doesn't work, has him killed. So now David is lying and murdering as well as committing adultery. And even more sin comes out of it, right, as the story continues to unfold. David loves, he ends up marrying Bathsheba and taking her as an additional wife, and he loves her more than he loves her first wife, and loves her children more than the children he had from his first wife, and so the son of his first wife ends up staging a revolt, and thousands of people die, because this is still kind of spiraling out from David's sin, right? And Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, who becomes the next king, like his life is characterized by, in many ways, the same sins, particularly his kind of like massive polygamy that he practices, seems to be an outworking of the fact that he saw something modeled by his father that was problematic, right? That in that moment, that choice that David and Bathsheba made has all of these effects that spiral out from it. Idolatry breeds sin, and sin breeds more sin. I mean, just look at the list that Paul gives in these verses. He says that from our idolatry comes... Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, inventing ways of doing evil, disobeying their parents, which is hilarious that it's at that point in the list, Um, having no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, right? The point of this list isn't that we're supposed to, like, do an in-depth study of each of these things. Paul's just saying, like, look at all the stuff. results this whole system of sin results from our sin so what does that mean for us jonathan edwards the great american theologian talks about this idea that virtue and vice he says right being doing good things and doing bad you know things and sin that virtue and vice are both symmetrical by which he means that they grow and they shrink together not individually so he means that you can't deal with sin or obedience in an isolated fashion when he talks about it, right? You can't just pick one thing to work on and expect that to work, which, which really makes sense if you reflect upon it. Like, you can't, you can't grow in love, right, without also growing in patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control and the other virtues, right? I mean, you don't know anybody that you're like, they're just such a loving person, they're just really impatient and unkind, right? That makes sense to us, that you have to kind of grow in those virtues together, And the same thing is true of sin, that you can't just focus on one corner of it, you have to kind of attack the thing as a whole. It's like, so I do that, right? I'm like, okay, like, this sin I'm being convicted about, and I need to grow in this thing, right? But this other thing, I just kind of don't want to deal with. You know what I'm talking about, like... Paul's saying in this text, you can't do that. You can't say, like, I'm okay with God speaking to these areas of my life, but these areas of my life, no. Like, th- this is my stuff, all right? And the reason for that, he's saying, is that it's like this. You know those, those kids' toys that are squishy, where you, like, squish one part of them and the other part, like, blows up to some really abnormal, scary, kind, you know, like the eyes or whatever blow up really big? Sin, he's saying, is like that. That if you try to deal with it in an isolated way, what you're doing is you're like, okay, over here like, is this greed thing that I'm going to work on, and so I like, squeeze down on that, right? But as I do that, it doesn't shrink the sin. All that happens is, you know, over here, that something else flows up. And then I'm like, oh no, like, that's getting out of control, so now I need to you know, go squish this down. And what happens at that point, it all flows back into the first thing, right? And you can squish and squish and fight and fight, but as long as you're just doing it that way, you're not making any progress. Paul was saying is that instead of trying to deal with individual sins, the way to deal with the system of sin as a whole is to deal with our idolatry, right? It's like worshiping our idols is a thing that pumps fluid into that toy to begin with, and so it's only by addressing that that we're actually going to be able to make any progress. So the root of our sin is our idolatry, and idolatry leads to systems of sin and to destructive desires. That's what Paul is saying in our text. So if that's the case, what's the big picture? Like, how do we deal then with our idolatry? So part of the answer is the gospel. as We've talked about it before, and we'll continue to talk about it throughout this series, that experiencing the redemptive work of Jesus and his grace is part of dealing with our idolatry. And when we think about fighting sin, that's an important place to start, right? Before we kind of talk about it, because you come out of these sort of things, and you're like, my idols are destructive, and I have let sin multiply, and you need the gospel to enable you to fight, right? And part of the answer is also that what we just did has some power, just naming the truth about sin. If our idols are lies, then just acknowledging that they're lies has some power. The Bible's full of these great little texts that are kind of pointing out the absurdity of idols. So like Isaiah 44, and he's talking particularly in that crude form about statues, but he has this great just kind of This whole chapter where he just ridicules people for like taking a log and cutting it in half and lighting one half on fire to cook their dinner and carving up the other half and saying, it's a God, right? That that's absurd. But recognizing that kind of absurdity about our idols is actually an important part of fighting them. That naming that cycle that we talked about at the beginning has power, right? Of just saying like, I have sought after this thing and sought after this thing and I am still unhappy and unfulfilled. Why do I think that continuing to seek after this thing is going to change that? So those are both part of the answers, but the other and deeper answer to our idolatry, and the thing that I think that this text calls me to, at least, is that I need to continue to practice worshiping the true and living God. The best answer to our idolatry is to practice worshiping God. The problem with idols is that they're taking God out of the center of the universe and putting something back in, right? That they're turning from the living God and chasing after idols. Those are the images. And so the best answer to that is to turn back towards the living God, right? To take God and seek to put him back at the center of the universe. The more we do that, the more idols actually lose their power. It's like, I was thinking about this... Reflecting on it, John Piper, the preacher, has this great little reflection from a sermon he preached years ago. And he asks, um, Do you know why adult novelty stores have tinted windows? Right? He says, Okay, do you know why they have tinted windows? And he says, We all have one intuitive answer, which is to keep people from seeing in, right? And that's, he says, maybe part of the answer. But he thinks the deeper reason is to keep the people inside from seeing out, from seeing the world and the sky and the sun right? Because if you actually had to deal with just the bigness and vastness of the sky and the blazing power of the sun and the majesty of creation, you would suddenly recognize that these things that you're holding in your hand are dirty and cheap and small. And that is true, I think, of any idol. The best way to fight against it is to have your heart arrested by the bigness and greatness of God. To see his blazing power, right? To be in awe of his majesty and then you start to see how dirty and cheap and small those idols are. So one of the best practices I think you can develop as a Christian and one that I'd maybe encourage you guys to try out this afternoon or this week is just take like five or ten minutes, just take a chunk of chime and think about, reflect on some reality in a worshipful way. Right. So you can think about think about something about God, right? Think about that God rules over everything or is eternal or that he like like think about that God knows everything, right? And just reflect for a few minutes on like God knows every thought that's running through my brain right now. And he knows every electrical impulse that's connected to every one of those thoughts. And not only that, but he knows every thought that's running through every other human brain right now at the same time. And all of those electrical impulses. And all the, the electrical impulses and thoughts in every animal's brain. And every thought in my brain before this point. And every thought in my brain after this point. And all of those for every other creature that's alive right now. And that has ever been alive. And that will ever be alive. He knows all of that in this moment. And the more you reflect on that, right, you just have to say, wow, God, right? You feel your heart lifted in worship. Or reflect on some piece of creation, right? I mean, I mentioned this guy. Just go out there and look up and think about how far up it goes, Yes? Up to the clouds, and out past the atmosphere, and out past these planets that are already unimaginably distant, and out to these like preposterous things we call light years, right? And you know, and on and on like that. And think about how small you are next to that, and think about how big God, who is bigger than all of that, is, right? And you feel your heart lifted in worship, or some little thing. Think about some little thing. Take a few minutes and Just like think about your hand, right? Have you ever just stopped and reflected on your hand? Like you have all these bones, right? And all of these tendons and muscles that let you do all these different things and a million different nerve endings that let you feel like touch and hot and cold and all the pores and the skin and all this crazy like, like God designed this, right? And we spent hundreds of millions of dollars and some of the greatest minds of humanity to make these like robotic facsimiles of hands that are basically toys next to the real thing, Right? whatever it is something in creation some reality of God, just take 5 minutes and pick something and reflect on the reality of the greatness of god that's on display in that because as you do that it actually starts to make idols lose their power it's like it enlarges your heart it's like it's like if i'm all about money right and i'm just invested in money and i like i buy my wife you know like a big diamond ring say which this is not a valentine's day spoiler or anything <laughs> But well, you know, I buy her this, you know, this, this big diamond, right? Like the, the people on TV show off. And I'm like, look at this. Like, look at how great and grand and incredible this thing is that my money has bought, right? And then, but, and that seems really big until you look up at the heavens and you're like, God has spread this starry host across the sky and I've got this tiny little rock in my hand. Right? Like, what is that next to all of this? (laughs) Like, what is it that my money can buy? The more our hearts are enlarged by the greatness of God in worship, the more we recognize how small and silly our idols really are. So, take some time this afternoon or this week and just just give yourself five or ten minutes to reflect on one of those realities. Because the more we do that, the more we recognize the greatness of God the more our idols start to lose our power on us and the more our hearts are enabled to fight against sin. So let's turn once more to God and stand in awe of him. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Lord, you are great. You are beyond my ability to even express. I try to give these examples and I just feel my words fall short. Lord, I confess to you It is truly a grievous thing that our hearts so easily turn to such small created things next to you. And pray that you would arrest our hearts with your glory. Make our hope be your greatness and your love. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. good to worship with all of you guys this morning. There is um, coffee and treats and all of that stuff in the fellowship hall. Please join us. If you are a visitor with us, please feel welcome and um, say hello to the person next to you, or if you're next to someone you don't recognize, say hello to them, as this is the welcome that we should extend to each other in Christ. And remember, at noon today, back in here, we will...